All right, so when a new colony is uh, formed by a, a home country, the colony depends heavily on that home country, guidance and resources. Once a colony becomes self-sustaining, the colony may want to seek its own independence, right? Not want to have to worry on the mother country, depend on the mother country. And once that colony gains their independence from that country, there's a lot of work to be done. There is a government system set up. There's infrastructure to build like roads, waterways, an electricity grid. There are policies to make, a census to record, perhaps armed forces to enlist. And yet, in all these things, not one of those things grants this new colony independence from their home country. This laundry list of activities come in response to the colony's independence. And in a similar way, the good works that God has prepared for us to do as Christians, the fruit of the Spirit, does not earn us salvation, but the good works are a result of our salvation. This new colony's status as an independent country means that uh, they're working out their independence. There are things to do from the status of being independent. And similarly, our status as Christians means that we have a new way that we are to work out our salvation status. As children of God, our good works are nothing other than the Holy Spirit's working out of our saving faith. Our obedience to God's law is only done through the Holy Spirit's power, not our own. Now, it's been a while since I last preached here, so I want us to recall where we've been in this text And our church has covered a lot of ground between now and then with the Ten Commandments series. So let's take just a few moments to review. In my last sermon, we looked at the apostolic faith. Perhaps you remember that. We looked at verses 1 through 7. And the apostles are the sent ones of Christ. Christ sent out the apostles. And their message was Christ's message. And then we answered, well, what does this apostolic faith do? And Peter was telling us the faith suffices and it furnishes. And all this should have helped us to see clearly that we can be sure that we have the apostolic faith because we will produce fruit. And Peter was giving this great assurance to us because God's work is in us to save us and to mature us. Remember, Peter's writing to Christians And he opened his letter with the gospel message so that he could continue writing to explain what this gospel message will do in the life and hearts of God's people. Peter is writing to the household of God. Also, because he starts with gospel, we would do well to read this passage in a continuous thought. It's kind of like how I read earlier. We'll see that the gospel is a big bookend at both the beginning and the end of the thought, And it's helpful to read it in a continuous thought. Look with me at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And right after verse 4, where Peter states, we have become partakers in the divine nature, escaping corruption. And then the other bookend, look at verse 11 for a moment. For in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied for you. Peter is writing to followers of Christ. 
those who are in the household of God. And if you're reading in your Bible, you may find something like a subheading that reads perhaps similar to something like this, make your calling and election secure. This sounds heavy on the law, doesn't it? To make your election secure? How are we to be doing that? How can we make our calling secure? How can we make our election secure? At least that's how it sounds, right? But remember, Peter started with the gospel. So let's investigate further to see if this is actually what he's saying or if he's saying something else. Let's find out together how we can live with a divine nature like Peter reminds us that we have. And let's keep in mind everything that we read will be in light of already have been given the divine nature. We have it. Within this passage, it's important to know that Peter uses three conditional if statements and three these things. And this is really key to unpacking what Peter is trying to say here. You see, each time these things is said, he's referring back to the fruit of the Spirit in the previous verses there. And we could substitute the word if for since. And that might give us a better framework of how to read what Peter is trying to write here, what he's trying to communicate. So look with me at verse 8. For if, or for since these things are yours and are increasing, this does not make you useless or unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our first point is, since you have been given the divine nature, continue to be productive. When Peter is writing about the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's writing in the context where the Gnostics at that time, who were those who sought out knowledge and revered knowledge as a worthy endeavor, he's combating that. They would seek knowledge and pursue knowledge because they thought it was morally right. However, the writers of the New Testament, like Peter, would call that idolatry, and rightly so. People were seeking knowledge for its own sake. They just wanted to be smart. Instead of seeking the knowledge of God, and this crept its way into the church. The Heidelberg Catechism helps to summarize truths of Scripture. And if you've been here with any number of weeks, hopefully that's been communicated. We enjoy the Heidelberg Catechism for its helpful summary. It does things in a memorable way. And when it answers the question, what is true faith? The Catechism says, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. Out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. So true faith, according to the Heidelberg, is two things. A sure knowledge and a firm confidence. Faith is both knowledge and confidence. And addressing those within the church who are seeking knowledge but lack the trust or the confidence given by God to have faith in that knowledge. Credo ut intelligum is the motto for our homeschool at the Bowers household. 
is taken from both Augustine and Anselm and meaning, I believe that I may understand in Latin. You see, for Peter, faith is the starting point, not knowledge. The world has this backwards, right? We seek knowledge in pursuit of faith. But the Bible tells us we need faith first. And when faith is given by God, it does great things. We discussed knowledge. So in this passage, in this verse here, what does it mean to be productive in the knowledge of Christ? To know that sure knowledge and to have it change the way that we live. Let's go back to Peter's opening thoughts to this section because through the knowledge of Christ, verse three makes it quite clear that we have all that we need for life and godliness. And then also in verse four, we have been given the divine nature. God has given us his Holy Spirit to cause salvation in us, to produce good works. There is a reason we must constantly review the gospel because the law or the dues of this passage are in response to the gospel. We get to be productive in the knowledge of Christ out of gratitude. This is one place where the guilt, grace, gratitude framework is very helpful for us to understand what Peter is saying. When we read a passage like this, it's very helpful to distinguish between law and between gospel. The law says do, and the gospel says done. And in this section, the gospel comes first, which means the law is the response. In the guilt, grace, gratitude framework, the law starts us by showing our sin and misery. Then we turn to the gospel of grace, showing how great a savior Christ is for us. And then we have the law again, showing us how to respond in gratitude. In this passage, Peter does reference guilt. It's at the end of verse four. But he actually starts with gospel. When Peter is describing being productive in the knowledge of Christ, think of it like a plant bearing fruit, okay? Now stick with me for a minute, but this summer, our family, for the first time, planted a tomato plant. Believe it or not, it took us eight years in our marriage to plant a tomato plant. But this summer was the first time. And let me just be clear, we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't even know the type of tomato plant that we had, but we had a seed and we planted it. And it took a couple days, but as tomato plants do, they grew up pretty quickly. But in a few days, it's, it's a small plant. The branches are small. There's no tomatoes on it in just a few days. But in a few short weeks, the plant was massive, as tomato plants do. The branches were much, much thicker than I thought. And there were tomatoes everywhere. I mean, everywhere. But what made this plant productive? Was it because the seed really willed and wanted it to be productive and so that it would produce fruit? Well, no. But with time and care, this plant matured and the seed produced what it was designed to produce. And this is what God does for us. When we're transformed by his divine election, dear saints, we are designed to produce fruit, attractive, delicious, gratitude-filled fruit of the Spirit. Follow along with me in verse 9. For the one for whom these things are not present is blind, 
being nearsighted, having forgotten the cleansing of his former sins. So our second point is this. Since you have the divine nature, see clearly your sin and misery. In this verse, there are a few words to clarify that I think will help to, uh, for us to better understand what Peter is saying. First is nearsightedness. Now, in our culture, nearsightedness means someone has blurry vision and they need glasses. Someone who's nearsighted in Peter's context uh, meant something a little bit differently. It meant someone who, according to one source, quote, is blind because he blinks or willfully closes his eyes to the light. Spiritual blindness descends upon the eyes, which deliberately look away from the graces of character to which the Christian is called when he comes to know Christ, end quote. So folks, being nearsighted is a refusal to see. Being nearsighted, it's not a condition of the eyes. It's actually a condition of the heart. The second word on which to elaborate is forgotten. And this has more of a simple explanation because the word has a causal effect. The person who is blind, by choosing not to see what is obvious, has forgotten. Choosing not to remember. In both cases, this is a condition of the heart. Now, how can someone who has deliberately forgotten their need of being saved continue to trust the Savior? How can someone who has deliberately or purposely forgotten their need of being saved continue to trust their Savior? When we have been baptized into Christ as his covenant people, and we are choosing not to see his glory or choosing to forget our sin, what we're doing is breaking the covenant with God. And this is why as elders, we're encouraging you to see your sin and misery daily, moment by moment. We want you to see your need for a savior often. When we start with the guilt of our own sin, before we move to grace, God is helping us to constantly remember our need for a savior. And Peter is affirming this pattern of life right here. He is asking us to remember our need for saving. When we make guilt, grace, gratitude the pattern of our lives, we are allowing God's grace to have a deep and meaningful impact. When we skip over guilt or we skip over grace, our response is often half-hearted at best, or perhaps embittered at worst. But when the Lord convicts us of our sin, it is painful, but through knowing his righteous law, uh, we can end up using that pain, that crushed feeling, to drive us towards the foot of the cross, which is why we need to see our sin and misery clearly. Look with me at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be zealous even more to make your calling and election secure. Because if you do these things, you will never, ever stumble. Our third point, since you have been given the divine nature, you are free to be stable and confident in your election. Election means choosing. An elected office or someone who is elected to an office 
means that that person is chosen to that office or calling. Those in government whom we call our elected officials, we chose them to be there. We voted for them, right? And when the Bible mentions election or choosing, God is the one who's doing the choosing, not man. God chooses us first. We don't choose him first. God is the initiator. We respond. And this is why God inspired Paul to write in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Saints, isn't this a rich, freeing, beautiful, incredible, and humanly impossible thought? (laughs) Only God could do something so magnificent. He chose us from before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for himself. Let that sink in for a moment. Since we are in Christ, this type of love should motivate us to be zealous. You're producing fruit. You're saying no to sin more. You're being more patient. You're becoming less covetous and more grateful. This is how you know you have been given the divine nature. This is tremendous news for the family of God. He has adopted us. And this, dear saints, this is why Peter tells us, can tell us to be zealous and confident and stable in our election. Because it's God's doing. What could be better than the calling and the election than the one that Christ has already given to us? This is great news that we can have stability and confidence, but it actually even gets better. Look with me at verse 11. For in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied for you. Our final point, since you have the divine nature, enter into the eternal rest of our creator. Here, Peter makes it so much better. And if you're like me, the predestined, purchased, parental love of my heavenly father can compel me or motivate me to do pretty much anything. And yet Peter adds to it. That's right here, dear Christian. Entrance into the eternal kingdom will be supplied for you. I hope you heard that. Entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied for you. For you, Paul, for you, Sage, for you, Josh, for you, June, for us, for every one of us who are by true faith united to Christ. Let's look more closely at how Peter describes this kingdom just for a moment. The kingdom is eternal. The kingdom will not end, one, because God will not end, and two, because his rule will not end. 
Psalm 16:11 says, "At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." The kingdom is eternal. And the kingdom is described in relation to Christ's authority and possession. The kingdom is Christ's kingdom. It belongs to Christ. As children of God, by the predestined, purchased, parental love of our Father, we will be citizens, citizens in his eternal kingdom. And lastly, the kingdom is described as in the future. And although this might seem obvious to us, it wasn't as obvious, but it is very important to make this distinction that in Peter's day, uh, they thought the same thing. And uh, perhaps it's, uh, it could be confusing for us. So we are surrounded by those who are in the church who declare that the kingdom is now. They demand glory to be now, and they think that your faith entitles you to that glory. They think that your faith entitles you to health and prosperity now. And this is just not true. This is not what the scripture teaches. Now let me be clear. Christ is ruling and reigning now on earth over all things through his Holy Spirit. So in that sense, yes, the kingdom is now. But we've got to be very careful. The physical reality of God's spiritual kingdom where he will be physically present with us here on earth is in the future. And that is the point that Peter's trying to make. If we have Peter's entire thought in view, we can see he starts and ends with gospel. Remember back to verse 3? The divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And now in verse 11, for in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied for you. God has given us all things. The kingdom will be richly supplied for you. Do you see the gospel of bookends? God is providing all things for life now, and God will richly supply us with the kingdom in the future. After hearing this, some of us might feel like bursting in the song. How good is God to supply us all that we need now and in the future? Some of us might want to testify to others for what God has done for us. Some of us might want to go out in nature and walk around, have a contemplative time with God in, in his revealed, I'm sorry, in his, in his uh, natural revelation, praying to him. And some of us, if we're hearing this for the first time, are cut to the heart. We're realizing we don't yet know Christ. In all of these things, whatever we choose to do with this, there are really only two responses. One is unbelief. And the other is maturing belief. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. Either you believe because God has shown you and has given you his divine nature and you're steadily maturing your belief because of that or you don't believe because God has not yet given you his divine nature. If our response is unbelief, then we need to repent. We need to beg God to change our hearts, that he can show us what it means to have his divine nature. And when our response is belief, then praise God. He's shown that to you. He's given you his divine nature. We can believe, we can trust that not only has he given us his divine nature, but also all things for this life and godliness. 
And Peter has been clear through this passage that there is no middle ground. The way that he writes, the way that Peter writes, one commentator makes a comment and notes that Peter divides, I'm sorry, provides, quote, a stirring appeal to his wavering followers not to allow intellectual appreciation of Christianity to become a substitute for moral application. You see, we can have the world's knowledge. We can know the right things about Christ. We can even assent to think and know that those things are true. But Peter is calling us to have faith in those things, to have faith in the facts about Christ, to put trust and hope and have confidence in the person and work of Christ and to let him change us by that. Dear church, are these truths precious to you? Is Christ compelling you by his love to want to obey? Since we have maturing faith, how can it continue to mature? Since you have maturing faith and belief, let's glorify our Father in heaven together with our whole heart. Love your neighbor in the freedom of God's predestined, purchased, parental love. Out of response of this good news, maybe we can ask someone how we can serve them today. Perhaps you're an experienced husband or father. How might you encourage the younger men in our congregation towards godliness in their marriage and parenting? Perhaps you're a woman experienced in homemaking. Is there a younger woman who could benefit from you sharing your experience in keeping and cultivating a joy-filled home? Perhaps you have lunch planned for when you get home. You could invite someone to join you and talk about what you've just heard. Are your neighbors in need of encouragement? You could write them a heartfelt card or letter or bake them something that you know they like and take it to them later this week. Perhaps there's a kid from class that you know is uh, struggling. Ask them to hang out this afternoon. Go for a walk in the park. Have some meaningful conversation. There are so many ways in which this love can be applied. Christ's love overflows from us in our lives to those around us. Let's let his predestined, purchased parental love overflow from us to others because we have his divine nature.